Hello, this is Robert Riggs. Before I start this episode, this is a message to fans in Australia and New Zealand. As of September 30th, the True Crime Reporter podcast will no longer be available on the Listener app. I know from your emails how much of you enjoy my stories, so please keep listening by following the True Crime Reporter on Apple, Spotify, and the many other apps where you can listen. You can also go to the truecrimereporter.com slash follow website to pick your preferred podcast app. We're developing new stories that I think you will really enjoy. Now, here's today's episode. The baby boomers are now getting really old, and there's and there's a lot of us, and we're saying, gosh, I wonder how I protect myself from something like this. Because uh, if Robert, worth hundreds of millions of dollars, couldn't get himself an aspirin, what can I do? Investigative reporter Stephen Michaud, among the nation's best, spent six years unraveling how an iconic ranch was taken from a dying Texas cowboy. A ranch where the biggest producing gas well in the United States was struck in 2004. The ranch and its mineral assets have amassed a $750 million fortune. But the cowboy who once owned it and his relatives never saw a penny. It's a case of elder abuse like none other, according to my guest. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here with a longtime friend and fellow investigative journalist Stephen Michaud. You may recognize his name in the world of true crime. Michaud, in collaboration with Hugh Ainsworth, another giant of investigative journalism, wrote the definitive book about serial killer Ted Bundy in 1983 titled The Only Living Witness. In 2019, Netflix premiered a four-part documentary entitled Conversations with a Killer, based on 150 hours of audio recordings of their interviews with Bundy in prison. They really got into his head. Now, Michaud is back with a fascinating look inside South Texas ranching royal families. If you ate steak in the 1960s, it likely came from these ranches. If you cooked with natural gas in the 2000s, some of it likely came from there. Sadly, People close to Texas cowboy Robert East, the sole heir to all of this, allegedly took advantage of his simplicity. He died a lonely death on the iconic ranch. Stephen Michaud has written about this saga in a, an amazingly detailed investigative book called Robert's Story, A Texas Cowboy's Trouble Life and horrifying death. And indeed, it was horrifying. Stephen, set the stage for us because this involves two prominent Texas cattle ranching families, the King Ranch, which everybody in Texas knows about, and the East Ranch, which I have to admit, I did not know about. Will you give the listeners a a history and how massive they are in the roots of these two ranches? Well, the King Ranch goes back to the middle of the 19th century when Richard King came down to Texas, became a steamboater, hooked up with a guy and made a, another uh, partner and made a mountain of money during the Civil War running steamships up and down the uh, Rio Grande River, the Rio Grande. That's, that's an oxymoron. 
the Rio Grande. And when the war was over, he moved north from the border with Mexico and bought a huge ranch, which became known as the King Ranch. And at its fullest extent, it was 850,000 acres. It was a huge, huge ranch and the most famous you know, ranch probably in the world. And it was led by King's grandson replaced him because King died young and so did his successor of the Clayburg family. And the Claybergs have basically run the King Ranch since the turn of the century, it's the turn of the last century. So the Claybergs are, are the one, uh, one family. The other family is that they're, they were an interesting bunch. The Easts all came down from Illinois after the Civil War. And it turned out that they were a farm family, but it turned out that they had a, a knack for taking care of cattle, for raising cattle. And they got started about 1880 and moved deep into Texas down towards what is now Kingsville and founded the King Ranch there. And it was the beginning, I guess, of an empire. And one of the, the King Clayburg daughters met a uh, young man from the East family, fell in love. They married and began a ranch together way down deep, almost on the Rio Grande River called the San Antonio Viejo. It was an old land grant that they had purchased. And by the time they had the ranch to its fullest, fullest extent around the time of World War II, it was itself 200 and some thousand acres, plus they had other land as well. So these were two baronial families, if you will. And Robert was a member of the East family, and his mother had married into the Clayburg family. So it was, um, it, you know, it, it was what you would expect among an elite, right? And give me, a, our listeners, a sense of the scale. As I recall, the King Ranch covers an entire county in Texas. More than that, because yeah. the, the King Ranch, like a lot of ranches in Texas, is not entirely contiguous. They would they would start with 10,000 acres and then buy 10,000 acres somewhere in the area, but they would not necessarily be contiguous with one another. They would often that you had to, needed an easement to go from one part of your ranch to another. So the King Ranch today, I think, even still has parts of it that are not actually physically connected, if you will, re real estate-wise, with uh, Kingsville, which is the headquarters. And these ranches may have started out as cattle, but uh, oil and gas was discovered, and that really made them very, very wealthy empires. Well, you know, it's Robert, the, the whole thing has changed. You can call them cattle ranches, but you'll find very, very few of these operations, even the huge ones like the King Ranch, which is still a giant, mm -hmm. um, they can't make money on, on cattle. Uh, they, right. And, you know, it's, you know, in that land, every cow needs about 30 acres. So the, when you start, when you look at it that way, the ranches have to be huge. And it's not a very lucrative business anymore because of competition from like Brazil. So there's two other ways to make money. Hope that you find minerals on your land, gas or oil, or increasingly these ranches are devoted to hunting. Uh, South Texas deer hunting and bird hunting 
it's famous for it. And the, the, the ranch that in question in, in my book, the San Antonio Viejo, is becoming a hunting ranch against, I'll emphasize here, the repeated uh, wishes of Robert East, the victim in this thing, who said, who dies, of course, and but before his death says, I don't want any hunting on my ranch. And that is an issue that we can get into later on, of course. Yeah, let's get into uh, Robert, his older brother, who was really the business brains, his sister. But Robert just, it, I'm struck by your book, he just wanted to be a cowboy on the ranch. Yeah. Well, Robert wasn't terribly smart. Um, he was the second of three children in the family. Uh, and he he lived much of his life in his older brother's shadow. His older brother was a very respected and, and talented uh, businessman and cattleman. And there was, as Robert put it, tension between the two, friction between the two brothers. And the problem with Robert is, as you just pointed out, is that all he wanted to do was get in the saddle and go out and ride around and and chase cattle. And the only other thing he chased was skirts. He never never married, but he had lots of girlfriends. And he took over the ranch when his older brother died suddenly of a heart attack in the 19, early 1980s. And Robert was was not equal to what was given him. Yeah, he could he could run a roundup, but he had he the business side was was a mystery to him. He hated leaving the ranch, and he hated, frankly, leaving Texas. I in six years I only was able to confirm him actually leaving the ranch once to go to Las Vegas, and then on certain on a few occasions he would go across the Rio Grande to. Uh, to brothels in North, northern Mexico, but that was the extent of his travel. He did not care about anything but chasing around after cows. And from reading the book, he was an ornery old cuss. Yes, he was. And his his resistance to knowing anything about the business and his orneriness, his inability of not having emotional intelligence to deal with other people seems to me, me to set him up for how he was taken advantage of that you detail in the book. Well, you're correct about that. Robert was protected because from his earliest days, he was jealous of his older brother. He was obstreperous, as you say. And so the family protected him and they were able to say, okay, Robert, get on your horse and go out and chase around cows and we'll take care of the business. And that, and that's how we're going to do it. But he, you know, I, I believe he had what's been called second child syndrome that he, you know, there, his older brother got all of the all of the attention, got all of the all the good uh, assignments, if you will, and Robert was resentful of that. Uh, what's important about that for this story is that th- that kind of 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 again, as I say, he called it friction, carried over after his brother's death, and there was a lot of ill will in the family going forward about. Well, Robert had a nephew and and two nieces, his brother's children. And although Robert had had control of the land, there was no comity, if you will. And, and Robert was not a leader. He was, you know, he was not capable of it. I mean, if you ask Robert what his favorite dinner was, he'd say, any Whataburger. <laughs> that, was the, that was the level of his sophistication. And his nephew appears to be smart. Yeah, business person and really 
try, wants to help his uncle, but his uncle is just so ornery. They can't come to any kind of agreement. It's just at odds. Yeah, and there's the the part about it was kind of interesting is that Robert wasn't just ornery, but he was stupid, and he was susceptible to fast-talking attorneys and to a corrupt foreman who had been raised on the ranch, who Robert thought he knew and, and trusted. But Robert, it was like he had a big target on his back. He said, you know, cheat me. Uh, in fact, one of his old vaqueros w- was once heard to say that the only deal way to deal with Robert was to steal from him because of his chip on his shoulder, because of the fact he wasn't very bright, and because most importantly, is that due to a lot of, of, of circumstances, he was isolated. And when the, when the conspirators, if you will, the wolves, as we call them in the book, found him, he was just, he was an easy target. He was a target. And they isolated him out on that ranch, out in the middle of nowhere. There was enmity with his family. Robert liked being out there alone. And when he got old and infirm, they moved in and, and stole his money. Let's pause for a moment, and when we come back, we'll pick it up from there. All right, I'm talking with investigative reporter Stephen Michaud, who's written a uh, Robert's story, which is really a such an in-depth investigative book of, of tracking down how uh, an infirm old cowboy lost everything he had. Um, and very rich as well. <laughs> very rich. So I, I know that I guess it's around 2000, the biggest gas well discovery in the, in the world takes place on that ranch. They brought in a well in 19 or 2004 that was for a time the most productive gas well in the United States and possibly the world. It was just enormously productive for a number of years. And Robert at the time was probably worth about maybe 10 or $15 million. After the, the well came in, he measured his wealth in hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, it's it's one of the cruel ironies in this story is that had Robert just been left alone, this cranky old geezer out in the prairie, I don't think any of these con men would have had any, would have been interested in it because land, while valuable, is a little cumbersome to, to, to steal. But once all of this cash was coming in, Robert became a target and Part of the, it wasn't just to steal from Robert, but it was to keep Robert separated from everybody else, which contributed mightily to his death, his horrible death. Do they target him after the discovery of the gas or they already moved in before? It, it already had begun, but the gas was like, wow, you know, we, we, we thought we might make 10 or 20 million here, but it, well, the foundation, I'll, I'll jump ahead here, to, just to give you a sense of it, the foundation that grew out of this mess lists assets of $750 million. And that, that money is almost exclusively gas and oil receipts, gas receipts. My God. And I take it, Robert, and the rest of the family never got a penny of it to speak of. Well, 
there was a lot of fighting that went on, but it was it 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 really never was about money or or his his nephew Mike, uh, who kind of led the charge, was only concerned about Robert getting what he wanted uh, because it was his ranch. The the family never really fought about money. They fought about what where you know we're a ranching family, and especially with the death of Robert's Robert's older brother. And after that, the death of his sister, with whom he was he was very tight. He was all alone out on that ranch with just his vaqueros, isolated from his family. And the old ways of, of dealing with one another simply didn't work. So years went by without them exchanging more than a Christmas card. I want to get into how they did it, how they yeah. got control. But first, how did you get on the story? I know it's it took six years, six years yep. working on this. As a fellow investigative reporter, I'm really impressed by the documentation and the interviews you've got, court records, and I know how long it takes to ferret that stuff out. So, Well, especially if you're dealing in a certain type of courthouse. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No digital. Right. Uh, how did you, you get the first scent of the story? You may remember Robert, that back in the 80s, I co-authored a book called If You Love Me, You Will Do My Will. I wrote it with my old writing partner, Hugh Ainsworth. And it was the story of Sarita Kennedy East. Remember that name? Oh, yes. Right. Well, Sarita was Robert's aunt. And back in the 1980s, she was in her late 50s, a widow, childless, and an alcoholic living alone, isolated on her ranch, which was also huge. And one day over the hill came a rogue Trappist monk named Brother Leo, who was out raising money to build new monasteries and had been sent to Sarita, who was a Catholic, and was sweet-talking her out of her fortune, half a, half a billion dollars. First of all, supposedly to build new monasteries, but secondly, to relieve the suffering of the poor of the world. And Sarita went for it. And the only thing that went wrong from Brother Leo's point of view was that she died before he could put the last dot on the I and and cross on the T. So uh, Hugh and I did that book. And I said, okay, now the East family and I have, I've met them all and now we don't need, we won't see each other again. And then this story kind of erupted years later, and I was strongly urged by people who were familiar with the first story to to return to the East family because I'd spent so much time learning about them. And so with the agreement of Mike East, who survives, uh, I said, okay, I'll do it. And so that's how it all began. Well, in 1996, Robert hired a, a ranch hand yeah. who really came to just exercise. He was young, just total control over everything. Had Robert's health uh, and mental state already deteriorated or was it on the way? Well, it's interesting. The answer to that's a little complex because Robert never was particularly bright. So you would have trouble figuring if he was having a good day or a bad day. He spent most of his life in the saddle. And one of the consequences of it was not only severe bowed legs, but he could barely walk. After all, he had had a number of, of, of accidents on horseback. He had broken bones. He had developed 
various conditions that you run into when you pass 70. And his health was deteriorating. Uh, his limited ability to think rationally and to think in his own enlightened self-interest deteriorated. And at the end of his life, as Robert was sort of facing the fact that he was dying or he was going to die, he only really ever said one or two things about what he wanted for the future. And he wanted the ranch run the way he had always run it, which was old fashioned. I mean, for example, they all use helicopters down in the valley today. Well, he refused to use them. It was all, everybody had to be done on horseback. He was backward in that regard. But the real core of his existence was he and his sister loved all of the wild animals that lived on the ranch. They grew these huge, huge white-tailed deer. Ranchers famous for the, some of the biggest white-tailed deer in the world. And poaching was a problem. But he had no interest in the gas and oil business. He didn't want Exxon on his land, and neither did his sister. So, you know, he was, in in a way, Robert had really nothing f- much further to say or to do. He was He was old. He was not well. But most importantly, he just was vulnerable. I've learned a lot about elderly abuse in the course of doing this book. Maybe we can get into that later on. But he just was this huge target. And elderly abuse is, is generally a crime of lower middle class to, to working class families. Robert was immensely wealthy. He had hundreds of millions of dollars. And he was kept out on the ranch, prevented from seeing a doctor, prevented from going to the hospital. So what were basically issues of old age were just allowed to get better or get worse and worse and worse and, until he died. A horrible death, as you say. During this period, yeah. how do these people really get their claws into him? Because a foundation is set up and w- in which the family really loses control. Completely. And he loses control of his wealth. And he was so wealthy, and yet his health was deteriorating, was kept isolated there. Other members of the family couldn't even see him. He could have seen the best doctors in the world. He could have flown them in. Most of his medical care was really, really suspect, including a woman who allegedly was a, a doctor who was going to live on the ranch and take care of him. But as we write in the book, there was a, a real question about her competence or her even her willingness to take care of him. So it's this deep, ugly irony of him being you know, richer than hell and living basically a hermit's life in bed, being taken care of a, by young Mexican uh, boys, you know, who were illegals, but they were convenient because none of them spoke any English, right? And so there's a, well, we can talk about that a little bit later because there is one hero in the book uh, that we can talk about who was one of these young boys, but go ahead. I'm, well, and meanwhile, there are a lot of people getting rich and what, 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 what is the purpose of this foundation? Okay. Well, let me go back because I, I did, yeah. I skipped, I, I skipped part of your question. So one of Robert's lawyers in the 1980s cooked up this idea of doing a foundation in Robert's parents' names. Basically, it was going to be devoted to uh, promoting the welfare of wildlife, specifically wildlife to coexist with uh, ranch, ranch animals on the prairie in South Texas. So it was a 
the idea was kind of like the deer and the antelope and the steers will play sort of thing. Robert never showed any particular interest in this idea. He was violently opposed to any program of, of hunting on his ranch beyond very, very limited hunting. He didn't like the gas and oil business. And had he had his way, they never would have drilled and found that well that, well that they did. He, he, he opposed it. So what happened was you have this isolated old man out on his ranch. You have a, a, a series of unscrupulous lawyers and employees. And one by one, they got into his will and rewrote it and established a foundation, called it the East Foundation, which exists today, uh, most certainly, although there are no members of the East family connected with it in any way or ever will be, as far as I can tell. And without anybody knowing it because of the isolation, one document after another was rewritten until at the end of his life, Robert's nephew, Mike, aware that his uncle was quite sick, but not how sick because he couldn't get to see him, end up ha- having to sign a document transferring control of the estate to these people in exchange f- for the chance to finally see his uncle in his dying days. He signed, he signed it all the way. Um, four days later, Robert died. And that was the end. The ranch had then had gone out of the family's control entirely. And a new regime pursuing goals that Robert, as we discussed, had no interest in, uh, took over. And the and new regime, all of them become filthy All of them. Rich. All of them. It was a, a bunch of attorneys and some of the people who had been on the, the ranch who had enabled some of this to go on, got new jobs at the foundation, right? That sort of thing. But all, all of the young well, the cowboys from Mexico that were taking care of him, they're all basically fired. Well, everybody got fired. When he died, the new management said, look, we won't hire you illegals anymore. And we will not even pay you for the work you've done in the two weeks since Robert died. And, and we have consumed, we have taken over control of the ranch. They just, uh, these are in some cases, families that had worked for three or four generations on the ranch. They just said, you're all gone. You're out of here. And some of them went back to Mexico. Others were arrested and deported back to Mexico. And some of them, Mike East, Robert's nephew, was able to absorb into his his ranch. It was a massacre. And you said there is one hero in that group. This is such a heartbreaking story, Robert. It's I mean, I you know I've been a reporter since you know, since before dirt, and I'm used to yes. awful things. But well, you know, Robert's death is is horrible, but. One of the young men, again, who spoke no English, put in charge of his care. One night was sleeping in the room next to Robert. When Robert, this is, uh, Robert at this time is in his mid 80s. He has a, a, a dream and he dreams, Robert's dreaming that he's he's uh, uh, gathering cattle again and he's going and goffing and going out. And so, uh, Ramiro, the young man, goes into his room and gets him back into his bed and says, "No, you're, you know, you're fine." You know, and he thinks at the moment he says, "You know, if he fell out of that crib, that bed, I would be blamed for it because they would say that I was not taking care of him." So he had the inspiration of starting to to audio tape all the conversations uh, he had 
he heard or was privy to around Robert. He had a cell phone. Surreptitiously? Surreptitiously. Now, what made it fairly simple for him is is that the Anglos, who had taken over control of the ranch, couldn't tell... uh, disintegrate between one Mexican kid and another. He was basically like a piece of furniture. They didn't pay any attention to him. So he could fairly, fairly easily tape record all of their conversations. The things that where they were trying to talk Robert into hating his, his nephew. And as he was doing this, he said, you know, it's not so much thinking to himself. He says, this is not just to protect me, but I need proof that what's going on because he's being, he, he's basically slowly being murdered. And it was when Ramiro finally got the tapes to Mike and said, Mike listened to him that the spell was broken, if you will. But as I said, by then it was too late. All the transfers had been made and they basically had to sign everything away just to say goodbye to, to their uncle. You quoted in the book, someone that, said it was their belief that this was at the least manslaughter as to what happened to Robert. Were there ever any criminal consequences for anyone? There was an investigation opened in Starr County, which is South Texas. They investigated, but without, without any witnesses, without anybody you know, able to go and, you know, and to say this or, or, or access to any of the documents at that point. Uh, and the fact that Mike, in order to see his his uncle had signed away his claims to the ranch, they had nothing to go on. They had nothing, and and there was the investigation was closed, and there was never anything close to an adjudication. Nobody was ever charged with anything, and there have been no consequences whatsoever. The foundation has is now thriving as a hunting ranch. Uh, that's where you go to hunt the big deer in Texas now. And what do the uh, federal filings show about that ranch in terms of the management? How well paid are they? Well, the the, the CEO earns $490,000 a year, and the members of the board are com- compensated in that that range as well. Their, their executive, the total executive uh, outlay for last year was in excess of $2 million. I, I, I can't comment on whether or not they earned that $2 million, but they specified in the, the, the documents for the foundation, the four members of the foundation board of directors work six hours, I think six hours a month for several hundred thousand dollars a year. Oh boy. Have you received any pushback from the people you've exposed uh, that and how they took advantage of Robert? You know, not a word. And I've been a little bit surprised by it because this is not me making up a bunch of allegations. It's all, you read the book. It's all, it's, the facts are all there. I mean, much of it is taken directly from their published art, you know, their published papers, right? Right, right. And tape recorded conversations, you know, where, where Romero comes in. I was concerned early on because the, the foundation or the, uh, the ranch foreman, was under suspicion by various law enforcement agencies for smuggling immigrants, smuggling drugs, lots of other sure. types of crimes on on the and that's border. the center for the cartel works. E, e, well, yeah, and so I, you know, and, and as you know, South Texas at night, 
is very dark <laughs> and, and very dangerous and very dangerous. And so I, I, you know, I didn't do any driving by myself after, after, after a sundown, but as it turned, no, as it turned out, no, I have not been, uh, I've not been threatened with anything and I hope to keep it that way. What is this? taught you? What have you learned about elder abuse in doing this story? Well, Robert, you know, since I'm now 75, I, you know, elder abuse has a little more immediate meaning to me than it has in the years past. But I didn't even think about Robert as the victim of elder abuse until the book was published. And the first response, I mean, the, the vanguard of the reader response was people worried about elderly abuse and what had happened to Robert. And I, you know, part of it, I think maybe Robert is that the baby boomers are now getting really old and there's, and there's a lot of us and we're saying, gosh, I wonder how I protect myself from something like this. Because if Robert worth hundreds of millions of dollars, couldn't get himself an aspirin, what can I do? My first impression as I read it was that it was elder abuse. Yeah. And, you know, the baby boomers have got all the wealth in the country right yeah. now. Yeah. And wow, it just, it, to me, it just signaled that you better not have Robert's personality of being this old, honorary cuss that isolates yourself because, boy, do you, do you become a target. And I, then I wonder with the wealth, especially the wealth in Texas, how many other cases of this are taking place? I'm not in a position to extrapolate, right. but the formula is is really, really, really pretty clear. Get an old person who's got a lot of money and their mind is and their mind is 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 going a little bit, and they don't have any, you know, they're for whatever reason they've been separated from their families, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's easy pickings. You should you you see in the book I've I've put examples of Robert's handwriting on all these, these documents that they oh, have yeah. him sign. And it starts out being a fairly decent signature. And at the end, I say in the book, it looks like a drunk aunt has been walking across the, t- the and yes. you've seen him. You've seen him. Like I mean, they're holding who, his we, hand. Yeah, exactly. Who, well, we know that they held his hand, you know, to do this. We have witnesses who said that, but it, it was so blatant. I mean, all they had to do, was play on the schisms that had occurred in the family. Uh, the natural, I guess, then that's a fact that nobody lives next door to anybody out there. Everybody's 500 miles from each other. And you have a recipe for what happened to poor Robert. In effect, this is, you, you could call it the perfect crime. Yeah. You think they've, have they gotten away with it? Or do you think your book is going to cause some law enforcement agency to dig in? Well, we've been contacted. One problem is statute of limitations. Yes. Which leaves out a lot of things. But there are there are issues that can be raised, such as, for instance, in, in the case of fraud, the clock starts when you discover the fraud, not when it occurred. I, I really, really doubt that they'll ever they'll ever charge anybody with a physical crime. Although the person to whom you, you uh, referred to was Helenita Groves, who is a great, great, great granddaughter of the founder of the King Ranch and Robert's cousin. And she went to see him on his deathbed and said, your quote is that I've run around, I've seen a lot. And and that was at least manslaughter. And Helenita, who is now deceased, was not given to exaggeration. In closing, 
Here's my reporter's recap and reflections. People over 50 now own over 70% of all personal wealth held in the United States. Learn this lesson from Stephen Michaud's book. If a baby boomer with a Texas fortune can become the victim of elder abuse and lose everything, it could happen to you. Do you have a plan and family members or people around you that you trust? You've been listening to the True Crime Reporter podcast. Stay true, stay safe, and stay tuned for more stories from inside the crime scene tape. This is Robert Riggs reporting.